Welcome to Recovery Radio by Landmark Recovery with your host, Zach Crouch. In this program, we'll discuss the root causes and treatments of alcohol and substance addiction, speak with experts in related fields, and help navigate the road to recovery. Now, here's the host of Recovery Radio, Zach Crouch. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Dr. Sarah Johnson, co-host of the Recovery Radio podcast, your internet radio destination for addiction and recovery resources that save lives and empower families. Zach Crouch, who also hosts the show, is off this week and will return next week from paternity leave. Do you know someone addicted to drugs or alcohol? Perhaps you've been struggling personally and are looking for resources and expert guidance. Recovery Radio is here to help. We are dedicated to providing you with the necessary tools to inspire a friend, neighbor, colleague, or loved one to take the first step on the road to recovery. Joining us today is Dr. Jonathan Weeks. Dr. Weeks is a graduate of the University of Kentucky College of Medicine in Lexington. After completing a Navy residency and three years as an OBGYN in the Navy Medical Corps, he completed a maternal fetal medicine fellowship at the University of California, Irvine, and Long Beach Memorial Hospitals in Southern California. Since completing his training, Dr. Weeks has over 20 years of private practice experience and academic medicine experience, during which he has been recognized for excellence in research, patient care, and teaching. Jonathan is board certified in maternal fetal medicine and addiction medicine. He has many years of experience treating pregnant women struggling with opiate addiction. For the past three years, he has served as the medical director of the Norton Maternal Opiate and Substance Treatment Program, the Norton Most Program. I am so happy to welcome you to the show today, and we are incredibly gracious to have you on the program. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Great. Um, I see that you completed a residency in the Navy Medical Corps. First of all, I would like to thank you for your service. What led you into the medical field within the Navy? Well, um, after getting into medical school, I needed money. (laughs) And uh, so it turned out that I was able to put in an application uh, and request that that our rich Uncle Sam pay for med school. So... uh, so I got a Navy scholarship my last three years of medical school. And from there, um, at the time, you could apply to do your internship and residency as a civilian, just like any other physician, um, or um, you could go through a military training program. Uh, and I was single at the time, um, had high regard for the military, and really wanted that military experience. So uh, I did my residency and internship with them, and then, of course, stayed on for my payback years. Wow. Um, when did you first realize that you wanted to pursue a career in medicine? Well, um, that's, if, you, if you can allow me some time, I have. Uh, it's a funny story. The very first time I ever thought about it was when I was five years old. Um, and um, I have a sister who's 13 months younger. And at the time, we, we were, I was born in 1957, so uh, some of the vaccines we have today weren't around back then. But between the two of us, we had some of the normal childhood rashes, et cetera, episodes of mumps. And best I can tell, somehow going to visit the doctor to attend to these things made some sort of impression, uh, impression on me. Uh, so uh, when I was five years old, my mother asked uh, at one point, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, and I said I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I was only five, so I changed my mind a couple of times, uh, between then and now, um, that as, as I recall, the next time she asked me, I, I said, I wanted to be a, a bus driver, um, uh, cause I've been on the bus a lot and, and I was having <laughs> fun as a five-year-old on the bus. But, uh, basically as I got further along in my, my education, I realized that, uh, medicine was a profession where you, you go in with your, it's a body, mind and spirit. So um, depending on your specialty, um, manual dexterity, a command of science, and a relationship with people, and I wanted a a job or or a profession where I could do all those things on a daily basis. Well, we are all very glad that medicine won out, even though I'm sure you would have been a wonderful bus driver. (laughs) Yes, I probably would have. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's important too. Um, could you describe the Norton Most program for those of us who are unaware of what it is? Yes. Um, a little over three years ago, we started um, a prenatal addiction program at Norton Healthcare. Um, and I had completed my board certification in addiction medicine uh, in the city of Louisville. Um, we were seeing the big uh, opiate epidemic, um, first prescription pain pills and heroin, and there, there was a need to do something about it. Um, at the time, uh, at least in our city, um, the, the dilemma or catch-22 that many patients found themselves in was uh, if they were an opiate addict and pregnant, the obstetricians wouldn't take them on if they didn't have addiction medicine treatment. Addiction medicine doctors wouldn't treat them if they didn't have obstetrical care. Uh, and there was a great deal of sort of um, discomfort caring for these patients. Uh, so care was delayed. We realized that if we created a, a system where the patient could come to us pretty much as soon as they would make contact, we would bring them in, begin their prenatal care, including prenatal labs, initial ultrasound, uh, etc., and evaluate their substance use disorder and begin uh, treating them. So we began treatment for both conditions uh, simultaneously, uh, and we also had a goal of creating a treatment environment that very much emphasized uh, motherhood. So um, rather than separating the addiction treatment and the obstetrical care, we felt by providing both of these services in a single unit, the, it would make an immediate impression on the patient, uh, sort of direct their focus on uh, getting better uh, because there's a, you know, because there is a baby on the way. Wow. What a great program. I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and pregnant women are one of my favorite patient populations to work with. But sometimes it can be challenging to coordinate care with their OBGYN, and I feel like that's so important because there is a baby involved. So that is great that they can get both services in one location. Yes, we and the other concept was, um, well, as you well know, um, the patients have a great deal of sort of shame and guilt. Um, many patients who have a substance use disorder, when they uh, enter the, you know, medical treatment facilities, a lot of times it's they're in crisis. Either they're in acute withdrawal or they have uh, a disease or condition that's related to their using, so sepsis or valvular disease, things like that, um, and they're presenting in crisis. Um, the medical professionals are often uncomfortable with the disease, uh, and because they're not familiar with um, substance use disorders and the neurobiology that leads to it, they, they're not really well-equipped to understand some of the personality uh, challenges and so the patients often walk away with a really negative experience. So going back into a medical care uh, or a treatment facility, even for OB care, um, engenders a lot of um, sort of reservation, reservation, anxiety, reluctance. Uh, so we wanted to create an environment um, where the patients would encounter really uh, good care uh, easy to access, uh, and a team who understood the neurobiology of addiction and could convey um, empathy. Wow. Well, that's wonderful. Even without having to deal with an addiction or an, or any other psychiatric issue, being pregnant is uh, is no cakewalk for, for most women. So... So it's great that they can receive those services in such a caring, nurturing environment. What originally attracted you to going into OBGYN, and then what motivated you to go on and 
get further certifications in addiction. That's that's a lot of medical training. Yes, uh, and again, funny funny story. Um, when I started medical school, I thought that I would be a family physician. Family practice was was my focus, um, and. I remember in my freshman year, you know, we were talking to our classmates, you know, what are you going to do? What's your specialty going to be? And uh, I would say, I think I'm going to do family practice. Not absolutely sure, but I think that's what I'll do. I, I know there are two things I won't do. The two things I'm absolutely positive I won't do are OBGYN or psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> Famous lesson. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, in as as I went along in medical school, what, what attracted me to OB was, um, you know, the experience of help, helping a family have their baby. Being there um, at the time of a birth of a child is something that's really, really special. Um, it's just difficult to, descri- to describe, um, you know, as sort of a third-party participant. It's, it's just a wonderful experience. And the other part that I hadn't really considered until I had an opportunity to to do some work as a medical student is um, you have so many patient visits in a fixed period of time. So even if you're a family practitioner, you know, it, you might not encounter, you see the same patient um, 10 times until they've been in your practice for two, three years or more. Um, but in obstetrics, all prenatal visits, postnatal visits within a year, you, you can interact with a patient and her family 20 times easily. And so there's um, a great deal of bonding that can happen and camaraderie. You really feel like you, you get a chance to know um, your patients and they get an opportunity to really know you. So that's what really drew me to obstetrics. Uh, later, um, ultrasound machines were widely available. Um, the technology was improving. Uh, the machines became smaller and portable machines uh, became available. And so as a resident, I had a chance to wheel around a portable machine and, and do some bedside ultrasounds, which was a, a great thrill, thrill for me and the patients. The addiction medicine piece came much later. Um, I was, uh, at the time, on faculty at the University of Louisville. Um, and, and we would see periodically patients who would come in pregnant in acute withdrawal, usually late in the pregnancy with no prenatal care, uh, in crisis. And, and the, the primary event uh, was an afternoon when I was covering labor and delivery and the high-risk OB clinic. Um, I was in the high-risk OB clinic at the time, and the chief resident from labor and delivery came over to present a case to me. And she described a, a young a young woman who was about 28 weeks pregnant who came in in acute withdrawal, couldn't really sit still to be examined, um, couldn't really provide a very good interview. Uh, the resident described um, how this particular patient presented much the same way in a previous pregnancy, and she was referred to a methadone um, treatment center, and she dropped out shortly after she delivered the baby. And, and as the resident presented all of this, and, and there was the story, but at the end, and she, she says, Dr. Weeks, we don't know anything about methadone or addiction. Can't we just call psychiatry and, and have them admit her? And it, the question I thought was telling um, that our OBGYN residents didn't feel comfortable dealing with this medical condition, but looking in her, in her face, I could see the, the angry, frowny face. Um, and uh, at that time, m- my thought was, well, I'm a faculty member in maternal-fetal medicine training residents. This condition's not going to go away. Um, we, we clearly are going to have to train physicians who are comfortable and, and do feel empowered to help. Uh, and uh, I felt like it was in- incumbent upon me to learn as much as I can uh, and set a good example. And so from that day forward, I started reading about addiction much more, uh, thinking about it, attending some conferences, and um, 
and, and maybe having a bit more of a personal hands-on. So what happened was I was sort of um, the expert uh, there at the time uh, because I was willing to do it and was beginning to build some comfort with it. And as you know, you were there at the time. The psychiatry department was really um, very helpful and instrumental. They could do some hand-holding as I was early on in my learning process and helping with the comorbidities. Um, so th- that was the start. And the more I did, the more I understood um, that um, we need experts, but um, it's such a big problem. We need every OBGYN to be familiar with it and to feel comfortable um, referring patients, evaluating patients, and, and to an extent treating patients. Right, right. Well, it seemed as though we, we certainly shared a lot of the same patients, and I'm so thankful that that you decided to uh, understand and help treat the addictions because I, I would not have wanted to go back and learn how to deliver babies, and it, uh, it really <laughs> does take a village to take care of all of these patients. Uh, so compared... Um, Compared to when you did your training or maybe even 10 years ago, how many women do you encounter who are pregnant and suffering with an addiction to opiates? Uh, it, of course, we, we know how bad the problem is in society because we, we work in the medical field every day. But I think even lay people realize that the opiate epidemic is a huge public health crisis. You literally can't watch the evening news without seeing something about opiates and overdose deaths, and it seems to be going up and up every year. Are you also seeing those numbers in your pregnant patient population? Absolutely. And, you know, the public health numbers say that over a 12 to 15-year period, we've seen a 300 to 400% increase in the number of women who are affected, and um, and there are babies who then experience um, withdrawal symptoms in the nursery and and possibly other long term effects. Um, so it, it is a growing problem. We are a referral center, so we see more than most any other um, obstetrical facility. Uh, I'd say we in our in our office we probably easily see fifteen to twenty patients per week. And on average, we see around four or five new patients uh, per week who, who haven't been in care uh, and need to get stabilized and, and either referred out to. Uh, if a patient comes from a distance away, we usually try to match them with providers in their community when, when possible. If they live fairly close, then we will provide um, most of their care uh, in, on some occasions, we partner with one of the OBGYN groups for the obstetrical part, and we do the addiction part. We coordinate visits so the patient can be seen on the same day um, for both the OB care and the addiction medicine care. Wow. So is the process different when you're treating patients who have addiction issues compared to just following a woman through a normal Pregnancy. Yes, um, and and I I may not extemporaneously be able to um, hit all the elements in the list, but in broad terms, we need to do everything that we would do for any pregnant patient. Um, but obviously, the addiction could kill them uh, potentially and the baby. So. Um, Early on, when the patient first presents, the substance use disorder, trying to relieve the patient's symptoms, reassure her, uh, evaluate her social situation so that we can get her in treatment for her substance use disorder is the priority. Um, But these women very often have um, a number of other social economic challenges. Generally, 70% or so are unemployed. Um, A large percentage will be in relationships with their significant others are 
uh, not helpful. Um, either they have a substance use disorder themselves, not in treatment and not motivated, and, and so therefore the expectant mother isn't especially motivated or, or, and treatment attempts are likely to fail. Or we'll have some significant others who reportedly do not have a substance use disorder, but they seem to be enabling the, the expected mother who does have a substance use disorder by providing money for, for access to uh, drugs. And so we have to address that. Um, poor living situations. For many of the patients, what we hear is they live in a situation where drugs are all around them all the time. Sometimes they, they live with family members, and, and multiple family members are addicted and living, you know, in that, in that location, which means their drugs are constantly available, and part of the recovery process is changing people, places, and things. That can be hard. So that's a challenge. We also um, have to evaluate the patient for hepatitis C. Uh, obviously, and if, if mom has hepatitis C, usually it doesn't change the prenatal care much as long as their liver isn't failing, but we've got to make sure they get plugged into uh, gastroenterology care or hepatology care to treat the hepatitis C after delivery. Uh, some patients come to us through emergency rooms where they already have infections. They're septic or they've got valvular disease, um, and that's how we... Um, are initially becoming acquainted with them. And so we kind of follow them through that whole process to treat those uh, life-threatening conditions and get by that, then make sure they're in treatment so that they don't relapse um, and go from there. And then another big part of what we do is stressing the importance of, of long-term care, you know, remaining in care for an extended period of time and using reliable contraception uh, once the pregnancy has concluded, because um, I think the patient needs enough therapeutic space to get better. If she has a newborn infant, and then within four months of that child's birth, she's pregnant again, she doesn't have a lot of time to actually devote to some of the behavioral therapy that she needs, uh, follow-up for her hepatitis C, for example. Um, so... It is multifaceted. It is generally much more complex than routine prenatal care. We do, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, what about urine toxicology screening? We screen patients pretty much every visit. Uh, we do witnessed urine toxicology screens. And, and as we tell them right from the start, it's, it's not about persecuting you. It's because we want to know if you're responding to our treatment and our treatment plan. If the patient's toxicology screen uh, never turns, you know, we expect them to be positive when they first present to us, but to become negative within several days, um, and that would indicate that they are responding, at least initially. And then later, if they have a relapse um, or if, they, if they've used a time or two, we want to know about it as soon as possible so that we can reevaluate what's happening um, with their social life, perhaps, with our treatment program, and we have an opportunity to adjust the treatment plan or, or perhaps their social situation or their behavioral therapy um, in order to make sure that they continue to get better. Wow. It sounds like they get a lot of support, which, uh, which, is, which is great. I don't think I fully understood how much having a baby could could change your life until I, I became a mom myself and went through pregnancy. And um, I'm always so impressed with women who come into the office. Usually, I see them after they've had their babies, and they're they have uh, they're trying to stick to all these behavioral changes that you talked about and and make all of these people, places, and change changes. And it's just a really difficult time in life to do that, dealing with a, with a newborn and, and possibly not sleeping and not having the luxury of having family members or the dad help. So, so that's just really great that you can get that much intervention on the, the front side of the pregnancy or of the delivery. Yes, you, you, make, you make an excellent point. And, and, yeah, just as sleep deprivation... Um, 
and, and assistance with childcare, the logistics of moving from your house to another location, you know, all the equipment you've got to carry around as a, as a, as a you know, a mother that's just given birth is a huge mm-hmm. challenge to anyone. And when, when patients have a, you know, a severe substance use disorder, uh, it, it can be, um, uh, almost crippling when it when it comes to uh, their compliance and remaining in treatment um, because they love their babies uh, and the, the the substance use disorder means they don't always necessarily uh, think through these challenges as well um, but um, often patients will relapse when they feel for example that well, they don't have the energy that they need to be a mother and to sleep better. They're going to use a, you know, they're going to use something in order to improve sleep because that will make me a better mother. Uh, the postpartum period is really challenging. Um, we have a, we have um, an LCSW in our office who actually provides counseling um, for the patients. Patients are often being seen uh, elsewhere, psychiatrists, um, Counseling services at, at a variety of treatment centers in the area: the Morton Center, Centerstone, uh, VOA. Um, there are just a number of places that they may be going, but we have a counselor in our office who can reinforce what they've learned, and um, and she's really great at redirecting the patients when they sort of taken a step in the wrong direction. Well. I just love that they can get all of those services in one place. It seems like it would make it so much easier for the woman who's pregnant. Uh, you know, those things are, are hard enough to keep track of just with, with pregnancy brain, uh, much less with, with other things in, in the brain that could be making it harder to concentrate and get from point A to point B. Um, so switching directions a little bit, when when I talk to families or sometimes work with uh, working with students in the past, people always want to know what happens to the baby. Um, so if a mother is going through this treatment while they're pregnant and has been off substances for a couple of weeks or a month before birth, will the child still be born addicted or is that essentially also treating the child as well? That's an excellent question. So, um, you know, the neonatologist will rightly point out that the children may be dependent, but they're not addicted. It's a semantic, you know, technical term. Um, the There are a couple of scenarios. A patient who, let's say, got no treatment, so she comes in and she delivers, she has a substance use disorder, she's been using heroin or pain pills, and, and her baby has a very high probability of experiencing withdrawal in the nursery to the extent that the baby has to, has to have a, an extended stay. The, the other scenario is that she gets, she's plugged into treatment, but for such a short period of time that um, it really, there's not enough time to really dramatically decrease the probability of neonatal abstinence syndrome or neonatal opiate withdrawal syndrome. So if a patient accesses care early, and she's been, say, in treatment for, you know, and compliant, so negative toxicology screens for eight weeks before the baby arrives, then the probability of the, of the child having neonatal abstinence syndrome is, is going to be somewhere in the range of 40%, uh, 45%, but the symptoms will be milder and uh, the hospital stay will be shorter. If she's been using illicit drugs and not get in treatment or in treatment for a very short period of time, then the likelihood of neonatal opiate withdrawal syndrome is closer to 60%. Um, the symptoms are much worse, and the hospital stay, hospital stay is longer. In, in our program, we offer um, basically all options, so some patients are highly motivated and good candidates for weaning or detoxification. Uh, for most of those patients, we end up slowly reducing their medication over uh, weeks or months so that they're on no medicines uh, prior to delivery. And the patients who, who are able to do that successfully um, 
course, their babies will have no uh, withdrawal symptoms. Um, the patients who are on maintenance medicines, most commonly subutex, um, we find, again, it sort of depends on the individual patient and, and other variables like do they smoke cigarettes heavily, have they chosen to breastfeed, uh, things like that. But the, the ones who are on subutex, um, roughly 40 to 45% of the babies will have some withdrawal symptoms. Um, but the hospital stay generally is, is relatively short, um, about two weeks to three weeks. Um, maximum. Wow. Wow. That's so being in treatment, you know, families, sorry, families are often, you know, concerned about that. Well, I don't want to be on this medication because my baby's going to have withdrawal. The, the babies, the likelihood of withdrawal is higher if they're on illicit drugs, even if it's street suboxone and subutex. So, you know, they, they don't, the moms don't often understand that. They think they're taking a, quote, safer drug because they're taking street suboxone or subutex. Um, but w without a proper treatment program, a steady dose, um, and, and good prenatal care, the risk is still high. Um, so they shouldn't fear going into treatment. Treatment means lower prob probability of the baby uh, being ill. So, so women come into the program and have treatment, and then uh, hopefully the baby does well and at most has to stay for a couple of weeks. What precautions can you take to help the mothers that are struggling with opiates try to keep their unborn baby safe once they go home? Uh, we hear all of these things in the news about SIDS and they... They emphasize so much having your baby sleep on their back and not having certain things in their sleeping area. What, um, what additional precautions do, um, do these women have to take, if any? Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. At Norton Healthcare, our neonatologists, um, the lead neonatologist for this uh, is Dr. Don Forbes, um, created a... Um, first of all, in designing the neonatal intensive care unit, um, they built in some special features. More space for the baby in the, in the crib or isolate, so there's more space. The unit is actually built for greater soundproofing, so there's less noise and stimulation um, that, will, that will help considerably. They also have um, a program... Uh, HARPS, H-A-R-P-S, Helping At-Risk Pregnancies Succeed. And prenatally, they'll counsel the moms about um, neonatal opiate withdrawal syndrome and, and what happens in the nursery, what are some of the natural, natural things that can reduce the risk. Breastfeeding is one. Uh, smoking cessation is another. Um, Extended bonding, so the, the larger space that the baby has means the moms actually can stay with the baby. If the baby's got to stay in the hospital for an extended period, moms are actually able to stay with the babies and care for the babies uh, rather than being separated, and the, and the babies will do better. Um, they also will provide counseling on um, care at home, um, all the safeguards that every mother hears about but also some additional precautions um, for, for those who suffer from su substance use disorder, uh, safeguarding their medications, for example, um, and um, training family members and friends. Again, people, places, and things. Um, the, the traffic that needs to come in the home might have to be monitored better and reduced in order to protect mom and baby. Um, so it's a lot of counseling prenatally, and then follow-up post, postnatally um, that makes a positive difference for these moms. So I am completely sold. I want all of my pregnant patients who are struggling with, with opiates to, uh, to come to your program. But, um, but how common is it for pregnant women to get referred to you all and to receive these wonderful services? Um, very common. I would have to say... Um, that we we have 
um, we probably take in at least 10 to 15 phone calls, inquiries a week. Um, and what happens is our team will reach out to the patient. So sometimes patients will call us directly. Um, at other times, it may be the physician's office. The patient presented for her first prenatal visit. She didn't admit that she had a substance use disorder, but, but a lot of obstetricians are now doing screening, and they find that she tested positive for opiates. And, and then the patient really admits that she has a problem. The obstetrician may refer the patient to us. Um, sometimes other treatment uh, institutions um, um, it, there may be, say, for example, in a Suboxone clinic that doesn't care for pregnant patients. A woman comes in not realizing she's pregnant, uh, has a positive pregnancy test, so they're not going to care for her, but they refer her to us. Um, we, we take in at least 10 or 15 inquiries per week. The problem is now once we get the patient's contact information, um, our team reaches out to call the patients, and as you can imagine, um, it can be difficult getting a hold of them, uh, and uh, even when they're given, you know, a time and date to come in, um, it's it's common for them not to show up. <laughs> um, but right. quite a few of them will contact us later. So we we make multiple attempts to follow up on the leads and and to get the patients in. Uh, I'd say probably only one out of every three to four patients will actually follow up with us. And on average, for the last year and a half or so, we admit um, for initial stabilization four or five patients per week. In the office, we see more patients. We see some additional patients, for example, that uh, let's say we're on, they were on Suboxone or Methadone prior to becoming pregnant. Now they're pregnant, and they want uh, information on what to do about their medication. Should they stay on? Should they come off? Um, what can they do to reduce the chance for neonatal opiate withdrawal syndrome? And we'll see them as outpatients. They're already plugged into care and stable, um, but they can see our counseling, and we'll do a little bit more uh, to emphasize the, you know, the motherhood piece. Um, and just, you know, long-term, what, what are you going to do? And, and planning for long-term treatment. One of the key things we emphasize is, um, you know, a lot of patients can kind of get rescued um, and, and fed into treatment programs. You know, if they um, qualify for Medicaid, for example, uh, these services are typically covered. Um, but we really emphasize that you've got to plan your life as if this isn't going to be an, an indefinite situation. You know, long-term care um, via Medicaid or, quote, for free um, isn't something you've got, you should count on. So you've got to make plans. If, if your plan is um, maintenance indefinitely, you've got to structure your life so that you can support that. So what does your group do when women come in that are using other substances in addition to the opiates? Or do you see women using other substances that can be dangerous for unborn babies? Um, yes, that we see that a lot. Um, in the, in the, just the three years that we've been running this program, what is concerning, if not alarming, is um, when we started, you know, we probably had about 50% of patients that came to us who were on prescription pain pills and 50% who were on, on heroin. And of those that were on, on heroin or pain pills, maybe only 15% were using another substance with any kind of regularity. Now the, the rule is heroin. Um, and very commonly, we're seeing patients that are also using methamphetamine several times a week. Uh, we, we see the combination of alcohol and cocaine quite a bit. Um, and the other problem is when patients think that they're just getting heroin, you know, often they're getting fentanyl or perhaps um, carfentanil. 
Um, but yeah, I'd say that now 60 to 70% of the patients that we see for initial stabilization mm-hmm. are using multiple drugs. And, uh, number one would be in addition to opiates, it would be methamphetamine is number one. Um, gabapentin is probably number two. Um, and then, um, well, it'd be between Xanax and gabapentin, uh, is two and three. What we do is, um, you know, the, for the opiates, we have medication assisted treatment. So we'll initiate that. Um, we, in some patients, they're using the other drugs because they can't get heroin regularly and they're sort of using methamphetamine to help them with their withdrawal symptoms. Those patients are a little easier to treat because once, once we have them stabilized on Subutex, then they quickly stop using other drugs. Um, but some patients um, are using other drugs because um, they're sort of chasing the high, and it's sort of gotten to a point with opiates where that's difficult to do. Their, their tolerance is high enough, um, or the availability is such that they can't do that, so they seek another drug to do it. Those, are, those patients are harder to take care of. Um, we can get them stabilized on Subutex, but the percent of patients who continue using that second substance is relatively high. Um, we do the best we can with some more extended counseling. Um, we recommend residential treatment for those patients. Um, that, that can be very effective because at least they're supervised and we're controlling, you know, the environment. And there are programs designed for pregnant patients. Um, but it is a tougher group of patients to treat. Right. It I've always found it harder to treat uh, patients in general that were that were suffering from more than one addiction, and it, it seems like that would be especially the case in a, in a pregnant population. Um, so, if a mother is is addicted to substances and then finds out that she's pregnant, what is the first step she should take in seeking help? It seems like most of the women that I've treated who, um, who become pregnant while using substances didn't mean to become pregnant because they don't want to cause any harm to the baby. So, so if a woman is actively using substances and then finds out she's pregnant, what, what's the first thing that she can do for, for herself and for the baby? Well, um, if, if she's in this area, she, the very first thing she should do is call the most program. <laughs> and uh, that, that is uh, 502-559-4375. You know, I said if she's in this area, you know, we've actually seen patients from uh, West Virginia and Tennessee. Um, but for most, most patients don't want to travel that far. And, and we, that experience was oh, a year and a half to two years ago when other areas in the country really hadn't geared up to take care of pregnant patients. Fortunately, uh, there are more local services for those patients. But call the MOST program. And I say that because what, what we do is day one when she comes into the hospital, we're assessing the baby to determine how far along she is. She's getting an ultrasound. She's getting some important initial labs. And she's getting a start on her addiction treatment. There is virtually no other place she can go to get in that quickly. Usually, usually uh, we don't admit on Saturdays and Sundays, but usually within a day or two of her call, she's going to be in getting treatment for everything. Um, if for some reason that can't be done, then the next would be, to seek obstetrical care, seeing a, either a family practice doctor or an OBGYN, someone who can document her pregnancy and, and make a referral to um, an addiction treatment center. That, that second option is a bit more problematic because there are quite a few centers in this area who will prescribe for patient, pregnant patients but only after they have been obstetrically cleared. 
they've seen an OBGYN established care, and you know what cleared means is is, a, is that's unclear to me. The problem with that is there are, that it's very difficult to get into an OB practice, you know, within a week or two. So her care and treatment would be delayed. Right. And the longer the treatment is delayed, the more likely she would be to harm herself or the baby with, with the drug use. Exactly. And I, and I guess as I think through it, you know, she could present to an addiction treatment center, um, as her first move. The advantage of that is many of them, you can just walk in, in the mornings, Monday through Friday and say that you're interested in a new intake. And they'll usually do a pregnancy test and an initial testing. And again, for most of them, if she's pregnant and hasn't had OB care, they're going to say, come back to us and we'll start treating once you've had OB care. But um, they often would make a referral to our program or perhaps another obstetrical provider they're familiar with who can get the patient in expeditiously. We've talked about a lot of benefits and services offered by the MOST program, including social work services, obstetrical care, medication-assisted treatment. Are there any benefits and services that we haven't hit on today? Uh, Yes, long-acting reversible contraception um, is is key. So um, there are now methods of contraception that are reversible. So for for women who might want to have another child, when they're stable for a longer period of time and sort of have have their life in order, um, we can provide birth control that will protect them for three to five years. Um, And for patients who have a substance use disorder, again, they have a lot of challenges, even if they're compliant. Typically, they have multiple children to care for, uh, sometimes unstable living arrangements. Um, they're having to try to care for small children and work. And, and so remembering to take birth control pills every day or going in every three, three months for an injection of Depo-Provera, those sorts of things, don't tend to work very well. Um, so long-acting reversible contraception, um, there, are, um, there are methods that, it's a one-stop, one it's done, and then there's no maintenance. The, the woman doesn't have to do anything for the next three to five years. So we, we do provide that also. Well, Dr. Weeks, it has been such a pleasure talking with you this afternoon, and we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join us on our podcast. As a, uh, as a parting gift to our listeners, is there any any one big takeaway message or thing that you'd like for them to take away from, from our podcast today? Yes. Um, what I would say is the experience that, that I personally have had over the 10 years or so I've been working at, at taking care of patients with a substance use disorder, and certainly the three years in our, in our um, most program, is the patient's the, the most common experience by far is the patients are extremely grateful to have someone who actually takes care of them. This is a chronic disease, um, just like obesity and hypertension and, and uh, perhaps high cholesterol, cholesterol. There are things that people do for many years that leads to their, you know, health, the decline in their health. Um, but when you welcome them into treatment, um, they are extremely grateful. The vast majority are very appreciative. They really, the transformation is, is very quick. So as a medical provider, if, if your experience is seeing that person dropping in the ER or some kind of crisis and, and, you're, and you have an impression about what it means to care for these patients because of that, that that's the wrong impression. If you really... Jump in. I, th- I would encourage any group uh, of any group of physicians and and some solo physicians to really t- 
take buprenorphine training. doesn't mean you have to prescribe, but you'll learn a lot of valuable things there. So when you find patients in your practice, um, you'll be better able to support them, even if they're seeing another addiction medicine doctor. So that's, that's probably the biggest, the biggest message. And the next is every medical... This disease is not going to go away anytime soon. And as a medical provider... You can't be a competent provider if you don't understand the neurobiology of addiction. It isn't just a character flaw. It isn't a moral failing. Um, that's not it. That's not why people continue to use. They've lost control. They have a brain disorder. It takes a little while to get there, and they can't see it coming. But they're there. When they arrive in your office, uh, they're hurting. They need care. Again, it's not a moral feeling or, or um, a problem with personal, personal ethics. And if you understand the neurobiology, you'll find that you'll be better able to uh, understand the patients and adjust your practice to, to have some success with them. Well, I, could I really appreciate you your time, more. Dr. Johnson. Um, it was been great spending the time with you and, and with your audience. Well, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. I know in my my experience working with, with pregnant woman, women, especially those struggling with addictions, there's no better feeling than having that woman walk back into my office as soon as her OB lets her leave the house or the hospital again with a healthy, cute baby. So thank you for your dedication and and look forward to working with you. If you know someone struggling with an addiction and are searching for answers, tune in to Recovery Radio on Fridays for the most up-to-date information from leading therapists, doctors, and addictions experts. You can listen anytime through the Voice America site or iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and view any of the Recovery Radio podcasts. Before signing off, I'd like to ask, does someone you love need inpatient or outpatient treatment for addiction? Maybe you or your loved one needs drug and alcohol rehab. Visit LandmarkRecovery.com to learn about their innovative substance abuse program that is saving lives and empowering families. Until next Friday, I'm Dr. Sarah Johnson with Recovery Radio, wishing you well. Thank you for tuning in to Recovery Radio. New content for this program is available every Friday with all episodes available on demand here on the Voice America Variety Channel and through our content partners, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play Podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to create quality content to help save 1 million lives in the next 100 years. You don't need to struggle through addiction alone. Live the life you dreamed on the road to recovery. 